Throughout this episode of Morally Indefensible, you'll hear dramatic recreations of notes Jeffrey McDonald wrote for his lawyer soon after the murders, as well as recreated excerpts from Joe McGinnis's book, Final Vision. Some selections have been condensed for clarity. I'm in Onalaska, Wisconsin, in the garage of Christina Misavage. She's a part-time true crime writer and a long-time true crime fan. I hope I do get some credit for providing you. Oh, yes. Christina's been following the McDonald case since the murders in 1970, and it shows. Her garage is filled with boxes full of case files and court transcripts. These are all the volumes that whatchamacallit sent me from the Department of Justice. (laughs) All this stuff, it's a testament to a life spent searching for the truth. There was something about this case that kept digging at my heartstrings. I could not imagine the pain that that family suffered, and they did nothing wrong. And the very person that was supposed to be protecting them was the one that was hurting them. I guess mainly I wanted to know why. Why? Why the murders? If Jeffrey McDonald killed his family, why did he do it? For 50 years, that question has dogged this case. And as long as the answer is unknown, people like Christina won't rest. That will always haunt me. I want to know why. And according to Christina, only one person has ever gotten close to an answer. Joe McGinnis. Joe McGinnis. Look how young Joe was. Oh, wow. I have read Fatal Vision. I cannot tell you how many times I've read that book. That was a book that was hard to put down. Because for the first time, I was reading my beliefs. Christina reached out to Joe when she was writing her own book about the case. They became friends. And when I was going to write things, many times I'd run it by Joe. He was an easy person to talk to. That was Joe. But then I felt so bad when he got the cancer. In May of 2012, Joe was diagnosed with cancer. The prognosis wasn't good. And around the same time, his old friend was back on television. Former Army doctor convicted of murdering his pregnant wife and two young daughters, Jeffrey McDonald, has maintained his innocence for 42 years. A court hearing weighing potential new evidence in the infamous murder case of Jeffrey McDonald. This guy may be getting out of jail, folks. Jeff's lawyers had finally gotten a hearing to examine new evidence they said proved Jeff didn't kill his family because someone else did. I had a floppy hat that I used to wear all the time. You might remember from episode four that Jeff's legal team had gotten a confession from a woman named Helena Stokely. At the time of the murders, I was involved with the satanic cult. And Jeff's lawyers would call other witnesses, who said Helena had confessed to them as well. From his home in Massachusetts, Joe McGinnis watched as the story spread across every channel. Exculpatory evidence, which tend to prove innocence. He would write about it later in his memoir. 
As with one giant mouth, the mainstream media swallowed whole the fish story being peddled by McDonald's lawyers. What was thought to be a clear-cut case might not be so clear. He's maintained his innocence from the very, very beginning. Where is the motive? No motive. No evidence of mental illness, no evidence of drug use. Why Why would he do this? To win their case, federal prosecutors needed to answer that question. So they added to their witness list someone who had been at Jeff's murder trial, who had studied all the evidence, who knew this case inside and out. I would be the prosecution's final witness, probably the last person who would ever testify against Jeffrey McDonald in a court of law. Mr. McGinnis, we're all here waiting for you. So how surprised are you after all this time, Jeffrey McDonald's back in court, Well, I'm not surprised that he's back in court. He's uh, always been back in court. He has no remorse, no conscience, uh, and he's a pathological narcissist who knows he's the smartest person on earth. He'll never admit that he's wrong. He'll never admit defeat. And uh, this is Jeffrey McDonald's last gasp. I finally got to meet him in person in 2012. And he said, I'm dying and I know it. I'm not going to take their bullshit anymore. Thumbnail sketch of Jeffrey McDonald, man you know. Absolutely ruthless and beyond morality. Fatal Vision is number one on the bestseller list. How could you be sued by a murderer? Every journalist who is not too stupid or too full of himself to notice what is going on knows that what he does is morally indefensible. She slanders the whole profession in a way that I really, as a reporter since I was 22, take uh, to heart as baloney. It was a devastating critique that clung to McGinnis. But whether he actually told him an out-and-out lie, I don't know how much of that he did. It's a tragedy. It's not like murder, but it's the murder of a reputation. I'm Mark Smerling, and this is Morally Indefensible. Chapter 8, The Final Witness. Jeffrey McDonald and the gruesome murders of his family became infamous partly because of the best-selling book Fatal Vision, which portrayed McDonald as a killer. Today, the author is set to take the stand. After decades away from the spotlight of the McDonald case, Joe McGinnis was heading into a federal courthouse in Wilmington, North Carolina, clutching a well-worn copy of his book, Fatal Vision. Uh, Well, first of all, your thoughts going in. I noticed that you tweeted that you were going to sleep well last night. Oh, yes. I sleep well every night. Let's talk about Joe McGinnis. He's on the stand today, um, controversial author. I was pretty shocked that the author of the book was a witness for the prosecution. Prosecution. Is he considered a credible witness in all of this? I'm looking forward to doing what I came here to do. Whatever questions they ask me, I'll answer. No one really knew why Joe McGinnis had been called by the prosecution, but it would soon become clear. Your Honor, we're ready for our next witness. It was called Joe McGinnis. Assistant U.S. Attorney John Bruce questioned Joe first. Would you state your name, please? Uh, Joe McGinnis. Mr. McGinnis, at the conclusion of all of your work in this case, you wrote a book. Yes, sir. 
Your profession is journalism. That's correct. You were writing this book as a journalist. That's right. Not a novelist. Not a novelist, no. Joe's wife, Nancy, was in the gallery. This time, Jeff was sitting there, shackled and handcuffed in a prisoner's khaki jumpsuit, the way Joe felt that he should be. Joe was up in the witness chair, and Joe kept staring at him. Joe would later describe this moment on a local radio station. All the time that I sat up there, I would continually look over at him just to see if he would ever once look me in the eye. He would not. Under oath, would you say that your book is is accurate? Yes, I would. In the long history of the McDonald case, prosecutors had never offered a viable motive, an answer to the question of why. But Joe did, in his book, Fatal Vision. Because of his access to Jeff, Joe had discovered a piece of evidence that had never been presented in a court of law. Until now. All right. Now, while you were staying at Jeffrey McDonald's condominium, uh, did he give you pretty much the run of the place? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You may remember that on a trip to California to visit Jeff in prison, Joe stayed in Jeff's condo, where he found all of Jeff's legal files. And Joe wrote about that trip in his book. In court, Prosecutor Bruce asked Joe to read from his copy of Fatal Vision. On my last day at the condominium, I found more pages of notes in Jeffrey McDonald's handwriting. The heading said, Activities, Monday, 16 February, 5.30 p.m., dash, Tuesday in hospital, 17 February. With the warm Southern California sun of late November shining brightly through the sliding glass doors, I started to read. These were Jeff's handwritten notes that he gave to his lawyers, a timeline of events leading up to the murders. We ate dinner together at 5.45 p.m. It is possible I had, I had one, one diet, diet pill at this time. I had lost 12 to 15 pounds in the prior three to four weeks using three to five capsules of Escatrol. Escatrol. Dextro, amphetamine. Speed. After you read this, did you do some additional research on Escatrol? I wanted to learn more about it. It's a mixture of an upper and a downer, speed and a tranquilizing agent. The manufacturer took it off the market sometime not long after February 1970. It was particularly dangerous in terms of side effects. Insomnia, restlessness, nervousness, and dizziness. Rage reactions. People would suddenly have uncontrollable bursts of rage after taking Escatrol. Psychosis. Insanity. May occur with large doses. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these 
people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Back in the courtroom at Jeffrey McDonald's evidentiary hearing, Joe McGinnis is testifying about a note he found in Jeff's condominium. In the note, Jeff wrote that leading up to the murders, he had lost a significant amount of weight. And he had lost that weight by taking three to five capsules of an amphetamine called Escatrol. Um, he doesn't say three to five per day. Is that right? That's right. He doesn't say three to five per day. He doesn't say three to five over the three to four weeks. He just doesn't say. But Joe had a hunch that this note might answer the question of why. Why had Jeff killed his family? Three to five Escatrol stills over a three to four week period would not have accounted for the weight loss. Three to five per day, however, could have had a marked effect. If Jeff was taking three to five capsules of Escatrol a day, he was overdosing, and there would have been side effects. Tenseness and irritability, hyperactivity, confusion, and, quote, the most severe psychosis. In order to figure out whether Jeff was overdosing on Escatrol, Joe needed to know if Jeff exhibited any of those side effects the night of the murders. So he talked to the doctors who treated Jeff at Womack Army Hospital. All reports from Womack Hospital indicate that Jeffrey McDonald, in the first moments after his arrival, had felt a powerful urge to get up and walk about, and that he appeared to be in a state of high agitation. Jeff was so agitated that the doctors eventually gave him a powerful sedative to calm him down. But one thing the doctors did not do was test his blood for amphetamines. In his notes, Jeff wrote a lot about Escatrol. He wrote that he never told the police that he'd taken the drug, and he was worried that it might show up in routine hospital lab tests. If I did take the pill, it is conceivable that my urine and blood at 11.30 a.m. Tuesday would have still had some residue. We would have to research the breakdown and excretion of what was in the pill. This diet pill was clearly on Jeff's mind. And when he had sat down to write his first account of the night's events, his consumption of a drug which is capable of triggering psychotic rage had been the thing he had felt it necessary to mention first. Is that why you included this in your book? Yes, the fact that he was so uh, worried it was clear that this was a major concern to him. The actual notes themselves were much more lengthy than that, is that right? Oh, they were, yes, sir. It was a complete account of uh, his activities up until the time of the murders. The CID asked me what I did Sunday. I told them I worked 24 hours at Hamlet Hospital and probably told them I didn't work real hard. They never questioned me extensively about Sunday or about how much sleep I had. Jeff told Army investigators he'd been moonlighting at a hospital off base. Sunday, he worked a 24-hour shift, and then on Monday, he worked a full day at Fort Bragg. That evening, he came home to babysit. His wife, Colette, was taking a class at a local college. We ate dinner together at 5.45 p.m. It's possible I had one diet pill at this time. I do not remember and do not think I had one but it's possible. The reason I could have taken a pill was twofold. One, to eat less in the evening when I snacked the most, and two, to try to stay awake after dinner since I was babysitting. Back in court, Prosecutor Bruce has Joe read another section of Fatal Vision. 
when Colette McDonald had left for her psychology class that cold, rainy February evening, her husband had been so exhausted from having worked a 24-hour emergency room shift that he was lying down falling asleep next to his daughter Kimberly on the rug at 7 o'clock that night. When Colette came home at 9.30, Jeff was wide awake. They had a drink and watched TV together. Colette went to bed around midnight, but Jeff stayed up. He was exhausted, and then at 2 o'clock in the morning, he stopped washing dishes. Jeff then laid on the couch to finish a detective novel. And finally, he went to bed. Christy had crawled into my side of the bed, as usual, and had wet the bed. And then something happened. Something, Joe says, set Jeff off. Over the years, some have said the bedwetting could have triggered an argument with Colette. No one really knows. But by 4 a.m., everyone in the house had been bludgeoned and stabbed to death, except for Jeffrey McDonald. Joe summed up his theory in his book, Fatal Vision. He had lost 15 pounds in three weeks while taking a drug that can cause insanity. He was suffering from short-term physical exhaustion and longer-term emotional stress. Would it be too much to suggest that in one instant, critical mass had been achieved, a vision had taken place, and that by 3.40 a.m. on February 17, 1970, the ensuing explosion of rage had destroyed not only Jeffrey McDonald's wife and daughters, but all that he had sought to make of his life. But millions of people took escatrol in those days. None of them brutally murdered their families. Why Jeff? In Fatal Vision, Joe had an answer for that question, too. Rage reactions are not in common in individuals who are abusing amphetamines, particularly when the period of abuse involves sleep deprivation, outside stresses, and most notably, any predisposition towards psychological instability. Let me put Government Exhibit 6075 on the screen, please. A psychiatric report appears on the screen at the front of the courtroom. Back in 1979, during his murder trial, Jeff had been evaluated by a psychiatrist. Just read the first paragraph. Dr. McDonald is in need of continuous psychiatric attention. He has the faculty to manufacture and convolute circumstances. McDonald told military police the murderers were three men and a woman. She's saying, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Acid is groovy, kill the pig. A sociopathic individual, he seeks attention and approval. Uh, my next guest is Dr. Jeffrey McDonald. He gives evidence of secretiveness with questionable moral standards. Did you have affairs? Yes. I was not proud of it. I never lied about it. Well, first of all, I never had an affair. I had what we call one-night stand. A man who seeks freedom and emancipation only for personal removal from constraint he told the psychiatrist he had a sense of relief that Colette and the girls were gone. How do you have a sense of relief that your wife and children were murdered? Dr. McDonald seems self-destructive, naive, and even illogical at times. Why would he cooperate in such a damning book? For 13 years, he has believed that all he had to do was tell his story, and whoever heard it would believe in his innocence. He's a sociopath. Violent dangerous. He doesn't feel empathy. The conscience is absent. Back in the courtroom, 
Joe finishes reading the psychiatric report. In the view of this therapist, Dr. McDonald may well be viewed as a psychopath, a sociopathic individual subject to violence under pressure. No further questions on direct, Your Honor. So far, in the hearing to decide the fate of Jeffrey McDonald, Joe McGinnis's testimony was as damning as the book he had written. But now, it's Jeff's turn. Uh, yes, sir. Thank you, Your Honor. Jeff's lawyer, Keith Williams, had entered Joe's letters to Jeff into evidence. Now, he handed one to Joe. If you would please read the yellow portions for us. Goddamn, Jeff, one of the worst things about all this is how suddenly and totally all your friends self-included, have been deprived of the pleasure of your company. That's Moving on again, I'm sorry, did you want to say something else? Well, I thought you wanted me to read more of, or stop there. That's fine, thank okay. you. This time, Joe wasn't embarrassed about those letters. I felt genuine affection for him at that time. I still thought he was a genuine, if troubled guy. He'd been trying to con me from the first day, and it had taken me a long time to realize that. I didn't understand about uh, him being a psychopath until probably 19, fall of 80 or 1981 when I had a conversation with Joe Wambaugh. We're going to move next to testimony that you gave before in a civil case in which Dr. McDonald had sued you. You were sworn in to testify, correct? That's correct. Sworn to tell the truth. That's right. You were asked a question, are you convinced today that he killed his wife, that is Dr. McDonald, that he killed his wife and children, and what was your answer? Yes, I am. You were asked the question, did you ever communicate to Dr. McDonald the fact that you had formed that opinion by the end of the trial? What was your answer? No, I didn't. You knew that McDonald was gradually growing aware of the fact that the book wasn't necessarily going to be his way, that that could be a problem for you. I knew that he would break off contact the minute he found out that the book wasn't going to be what he had uh, hoped for. You also said he was your subject. Did you say this? He was still my subject and I was still the author, and I felt I had a professional duty to maintain as close a relationship with him as I could. Did you say that? Absolutely. Yep. Here's a guy who's killed his wife and kids, and he's lying to me consistently, and my goal then is to try to keep him talking to learn as much as I possibly can about what kind of psychopath he really is. All right, let's move next and talk about your Escatrol theory. How much he might have been consuming will forever be a dark area. Is that right? Yes, sir. But the logical inference would be it wasn't just one pill a week. Did you ever ask Dr. McDonald how much sleep he had the night before the assault? And what was your answer? Not that I recall. There came a point in time when I recognized that he was being untruthful in all of his answers to me. There was no point in asking him a question if I just knew he was going to lie. If you knew he would do things like source material inaccurately. What I said was lie. This lawsuit was about McDonald being angry that I actually wrote a book that told the truth instead of writing a book that would tell the lies that he wanted me to tell. Bigger picture, sir. Talking about your books, you first published Fatal Vision, the hardcover, in 1983, right? That's correct. Later came out in paperback? Yes, next, the following year. And a new and bigger print edition is on the way. It's actually here. One final question for you, sir. Would you agree that there is no one who has profited financially 
more off of this story than you. I can't think of anyone who would because no one's done the work I've done. Thank you, Your Honor. So why did you portray him the way you did in your book? I portrayed him as he is. I got to uh, know Jeffrey McDonald probably as well as anyone ever has. And uh, that portrayal, every dimension of it, is uh, totally accurate. Joe was finished. He and Nancy went back to their home in Massachusetts, and he sat down at his computer to write about the hearing. It would be the last thing he would ever publish about the McDonald case. He called it Final Vision. It could easily be 2016 at the earliest before the case of United States of America versus Jeffrey R. McDonald is finally closed. That will be 46 years after the murders. McDonald will be 72. McDonald and I were young men when this began. Now we're old. The case has been a presence in our lives for 40 years, but at least we've been able to live our lives. That's a privilege Jeffrey McDonald denied his 25-year-old wife, his 5-year-old daughter, his 2-year-old daughter, and his unborn son. In his closing argument at trial, Jim Blackburn asked the jurors, if in the future you should say a prayer, say one for them. If in the future you should light a candle, light one for them. If in the future you should cry a tear, cry one for them. It's still not too late to do that. And that was it. Joe felt that that was going to be the last time that there would be a hearing in the Jeff McDonald case. And certainly that was the last time Joe was ever going to be there because he died uh, two years later. Yeah, this story has really put a big scar down a lot of lives. Yeah, it has. If you had to sum up the impact Jeff had on Joe's life, how would you do it? Hmm. I wouldn't do it. I really can't do it. Joe lived big. He went into these things with his eyes open. So if, if it's big and bad, it was also big and good, so. Might as well do something big. I think Joe McGinnis did an excellent job and I think his book, Fatal Vision, will go down as one of the top crime books in history. This is Christina Misavage again. Do you think that Joe McGinnis betrayed Jeff McDonald? I don't think he did anything that any other journalist would not do or have not done. Joe was at a point he needed to get as much as he could get, be it right or wrong. That's not for me to say. Christina thinks Joe got as close to the truth as possible. But in the end, what he came up with was a theory. It wasn't proof. I'm never going to know, and nobody else is ever going to know the real truth of what happened, because Jeffrey McDonald will never tell us. Jeff is 76. He's been in prison for almost 40 years. At this point, if he admitted to the murders, he would likely be granted parole. And still, he maintains his innocence. I didn't commit any crimes. I'm not going to tell two or three bureaucrats that I am sorry for something I didn't do. I did not murder my family. 
It's enough to make you feel dissatisfied. 1990. Enough to make you think that maybe there's something here in these reams of paper and boxes of evidence that you're missing. I wanted to know what happened. Why did this take place? After so many years, I finally came to the decision. I have to remove that question mark from the end of that sentence, and I have to place a period there. But I will just keep going. I will find everything that I can. Maybe one day I'll reach the end. I don't know. What's really interesting about the McDonald case is how many, many, many people have gone back over this. Why? Because they're not satisfied. This is filmmaker and author Errol Morris. People don't like ambiguity. Ambiguity sucks. We want certainty. We want an answer. We want something definitive. It's sort of why I think people are so fascinated with true crime is this desire to, to know the end of the story. Exactly. The desire for the period at the end of the sentence. Back in 2012, right before Jeff's hearing, Errol published his own book about the McDonald case, called The Wilderness of Error. He hoped to put the period at the end of the sentence. Wilderness feels a little like a journey to try to figure out the truth, or that, at least that was the impetus for it. But it didn't end up that way for you, did it? I went into it with the hope that if I worked hard enough and thought hard enough, that I could come to some kind of conclusion. Errol came to a very different conclusion than Joe McGinnis. He found that the government botched the case from the very beginning, and that Jeffrey McDonald didn't receive a fair trial. But his book didn't exonerate Jeff. Do I believe he's innocent? I do, but I can't prove it. Now he's asked me to come with him to take a fresh look at this story, to see if we can finish what he started and find the truth. Either Jeffrey killed his family in that house or someone else did. And shouldn't we be able to go back into time and figure it out? If I go through this process of talking to 40, 50 people who are still around and I can't come to a conclusion about exactly what happened in that house. Will you be disappointed? I'm going to have you killed. <laughs> okay. And if I come to the conclusion that Jeffrey committed these crimes, are you going to have me doubly killed? No. If you've convinced me. Morally Indefensible is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. This episode of Morally Indefensible was produced by Ryan Swikert, with help from Zach Hirsch, Jesse Rudoy, Kevin Shepard, Danielle Elliott, and Julia Batero. Story editing is by me, Mark Smerling, and Danielle Elliott. Alessandro Santoro is our associate producer. Our archive producer is Brendan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Amy Gaines. Kenny Kusiak did the music and mix. Sound designed by Ryan Swikert and Kenny Kusiak. Additional music by John Kusiak and Marmoset. Our title track is Promises by the Monophonics. Voice reenactments by Logan Stearns, Marie Lindsay Sperling, and Jesse Rudolph. 
Legal Review by Linda Steinman and Jack Browning of Davis Wright Tremaine. Special thanks to Sean Twig, Mae Ryan, Luke Malone, Brian Murphy, Joe Langford, Peter Schmoll, Diana DeCilio, Bob Stevenson, Christina Misavich, Bob Keeler, and Errol Morris. If you'd like to continue the conversation online, find us on Instagram and Facebook at Morally Indefensible and Twitter at Morally Indef, M-O-R-A-L-L-Y-I-N-D-E-F. We put a lot of work into this show, and I want to thank you for listening through to the end. If you liked it, tell your friends. And write a review on Apple iTunes to let us know what you think. Keep your ears open, because we'll be back.